0: Welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M. Today, I sit down with Dr. Bridget Briggs to discuss the clinical approaches to epigenetics in patients and especially women. She is a physician who specializes in women's health. Dr. Briggs received her undergraduate degree from the University of California in Los Angeles in the study of psychobiology. She then completed her medical degree from the University of California San Diego School of Medicine before completing her residency in family medicine, as well as an internship in obstetrics and gynecology. Thus, she is clearly well-educated in order to look at the perspectives of human health as it relates to women. She has been in practice for 25 years in Southern California. She's the owner of two family medicine practices in California, where she specializes in functional medicine and women's health. She is a well-known speaker and educator on topics of epigenetics and methylation in humans. Her story is personal, regarding her deep dive into epigenetics, methylation, and health based on her own family's history and experiences to date, which we'll discuss in the podcast. We take a winding road, looking at the clinical applications of epigenetic understandings as laid out by the experts and trailblazers of DNA methylation and phenotypic change in animals and humans, as discussed recently with Dr. Randy Jertle and Dr. Moshe Schiff. We get into some controversial topics, including vaccination, preparation for vaccination, avoidance of vaccination in some cases, and much more. The conversation is open, it's honest, and it's really thoughtful. We finished with a hard look at the pregnancy state and how to achieve optimal outcomes for our offspring. As with many other conversations over the past two and a half years of this podcast, the idea is that we are trying to find the best possible answers moving forward for humans to have the best possible outcomes. And this is, again, another story in The Hope for Humanity. So please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Bridget Briggs. Well, good morning, Dr. Bridget Briggs from the other side of the country. I understand I'm speaking to you in California and Temecula. So welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. So it's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Uh, We met recently, and I was very excited to see your view of the world through the epigenetic model and you're part 3 of the series with Dr Randy Jurdle and Dr Moshe Schiff and I'm bringing you in as the clinician expert the the medical side of the team that says to the patient this is what we learn and this is what we can do to change the outcome of mom potentially of baby and potentially of the entire future generations coming so with that as sort of the backstop of where we're going with this discussion I want you to sort of give the world your view of epigenetics. How did you come to this field and how do you see it in any way, shape or form you want to describe it?
1: Um, I really was introduced to epigenetics through Dr. Jeffrey Bland, of course, the father of functional medicine. So we can probably all declare that to some extent, you know, yep. our epiphany moment, you know, it's going to somehow trace back to Jeff. Um, I have a son with brain cancer. And so I was really searching lifestyle medicine, and a lot of whys. Um, We followed the traditional route, and we were often disappointed right from the get-go. We had adverse reactions to almost every intervention. Um, And Nolan, my son, was always just a little bit different. So genetics was a very interesting topic for me. I met Dr. Bland. He said something about methylation. Never heard that word in medical school. I mean, it was completely novel. I did a deep dive. Um, Ended up joining Dr. Bland's circuit on speaking about methylation. Felt like I had to become the next expert. Um, But, you know, by the grace of God, this was Nolan's mishap. He had the double MTHFR. We started introducing methylation along with healthy lifestyle medicine and his tumors stopped growing. So he is now 22 years old with a high need for methylation. Um, It has stabilized four brain tumors. They do not grow. He did spend five years on chemotherapy, so we have some deficits, but he's a normal 22-year-old adult adulting out there in life. And so that kind of introduced it into my own personal life, and then I brought it into the clinic, um, and I have seen miracles happen with people that have sought 11 different doctors and they show up in our clinic. And to me, it's the foundational problem of assessment. The first thing we do when we look at a patient is we take a history. One of the things that we're not taught as clinicians is to look at the genetic background of this patient. What are some genetic weaknesses that can be supported so that the metabolic pathways in the body can restore Balance. So it's almost assessed in every one of our patients. It does not mean that everybody has genetic errors in methylation. And things that we talked about, Chris, in the in the conference is we are exposed to so many environmental demethylators that create DNA instability. So the epigenome is so much more an interesting topic today of how chemicals and toxins can create an unstable epigenome and affect the expression of our DNA. So to me, methylation is one caveat. It's one tool to help our patients express their very best DNA. And I find it's a common imbalance in the body because of stress, infections, vaccinations, you name it. So I'm a big believer in blood tests. You know, I don't want to do like voodoo medicine. I feel like I'm a scientist. I want to run a methylation panel. I want to run an epigenetic profile. I want to run genetics. And I want to really look at the tools and the clinical picture together to reestablish balance. And I find it's incredibly therapeutic.
0: I love it. And to most of the stories of the guests that come on the podcast, they tend to fall into a new field of medicine or a new way of looking at the world because of hardship. And in your case, the hardship of seeing a son suffer with a disease. And kudos to you again for digging and diving and onion peeling and onion peeling and onion peeling until you get to a piece of the scientific understanding that lets you pull on a lever that changes outcomes. And so for the audience, I want to sort of touch on this topic. So you're speaking to the epigenome, this modifiable uh, read, not read structure of our DNA. Why is this so important now to study the data as far as blood tests, but 2000 years ago? We didn't have to. What is the difference from an anthropologic perspective in your mind that we're now really having to struggle with this model where for most of human existence for three million years, it was an adaptable benefit?
1: Well, if I go back into a lot of the science, what we see is, you know, the mass generation of mass agriculture and toxins, pesticides, things like that really surfacing in human food. Um, production and manufacturing. I feel like we have seen, you know, early studies on toxigenomics that said, hey, this chemical is fine for the here and the now and what it binds. And the EPA kind of fed up this, this, you know, infantile understanding of toxigenomics, right? We really didn't understand it to the genetic level. So, you know, when we're Hunters and gatherers, and we're eating from the earth, you know, first of all, longevity of life was very short. And exposure to chemicals was only man-made chemicals, like chemicals from, you know, plants and things like that, which had its own, you know, kill you right then and there. But it's not to the extent that we see the effects of toxins on the epigenome and as we've looked at the imprintome and how well the extent of penetration of that chemical to the point that I believe that's a core issue with autism. And beyond autism, I mean, we kind of grouped all these kids into autism, but the spectrum is actually interesting to look at because you'll see children that have flapping um, and excitotoxicity and anxiety, and maybe they're not fully autistic. There's a spectrum of neuroendocrine immune disorders that I believe are related to different times of exposure during the pregnancy, um, exposures after the baby's born. So to me, the epigenome is more vulnerable today than ever. And largely because of how long we live, the duration of time that we have exposure to chemicals. I always joke like when I grew up, we grew up on glass. I mean, everything was in glass, that's an exposure of my age, but I don't remember plastic mayonnaise jars. So the environment has changed very drastically even in our lifespan. And so we don't really understand how every child drinks water out of a water bottle. I mean, we're playing on soccer fields that are sprayed with chemicals on a daily basis. Like we cannot even begin to understand how we have completely changed our epigenome. And more importantly is our epigenome responds to the environment that we're in right now to save their lives of our children, right? That's the whole grandfather effect and what have you. But what we don't understand is the exposure that we're having here and now is not just affecting, affecting our grandkids. It's so many generations beyond. It's a scary thought, Chris. I, I'm literally afraid of our lack of understanding and, and the kids' understanding of what's gonna happen in the future
0: yeah and uh to paraphrase what you just said so everyone can follow along the change has not occurred from a mistake of human evolution the human system the epigenome the dna the book of life the functioning of this system has not been altered in a negative way what has happened is the inputs the exposome as we call it or dr Bland calls it has changed precipitously in less than 100 years so for three million years, we've basically lived the same way. Exposure to natural-based foods, natural-based toxins, if they are there, um, you know, pollutants were more rare, but in different in different systems. And now we flooded the system within a hundred-year cycle with more chemicals that we can fathom. In the United States, it's 84,000, most of which have not been tested in humans to the point to your state at the genetic level. We do the toxicological model that says, is this toxic in the dose right now? Mm-hmm. Zero understanding of what this does chronicity, from a chronicity standpoint. And now we're suffering with that a reality. And to your second point, we are absolutely, I, I would agree with you. I think we are absolutely on the front end of a wave of F1, F2, F3 generation, nightmare based on the alteration in this this dna read not read cycle that we are going to see autism rates and and neurodiversity rates potentially rising beyond you know to the to the point of function in society and this is very scary and i and i so submit to you i agree that the biggest piece of this pie is around the state of exposure as mom being the primary influence of this exposure and then the child secondarily because these are the times when the growth is exponential. The baby is an amalgam of a a sperm and an egg and within 10 short months, that turns into a baby, which is billions of cells. Well, that's where DNA is constantly changing, going through. So let's segue for you now to discuss that. So if we start at this beautiful, beautiful, Model that was made where we can take a sperm and an egg and we produce a human. What is actually happening inside the baby from the research that you understand and so elegantly presented at the conference in Boston, for us to start to understand fetal origins of disease, or you know the other way people are saying that that it's basically the essential reality of the the DOHD. I can't even remember what that all stands for anymore. But I usually look at fetal origins of disease. So take it away.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, one, we've had a growing body of data that looks at what's going on with mom in the pregnancy and how that's literally immunologically, her immune system is changing the epigenome during these critical stages of development. So, examples like chorionitis, or whether mom during pregnancy is fed steroids because at 28 weeks, she starts having premature contractions. You know, we just don't want her to go in and have a baby too soon. And, you know, we we don't understand the ramifications of these insults that are introduced during different stages of pregnancy. But the data is now revealing at different stages of development, there is permanent epigenomic changes that are occurring. Some some of these changes cannot be re, um, rebalanced. Okay, there are some stages of development such as around the time of birth and what have you, that if there is an epigenetic imbalance that affects the child's immune system. So we see that the largest danger to these insults that are happening during pregnancy, uh, fetal alcohol exposure, maternal abuse, even social, emotional abuse. These seem to have very critical alterations of immunological epigenome of the baby. Does that make sense? So it's like yep. it's the largest danger seems to be the child's immunity. And largely that's because of the neuroimmune connection, right? The neuroendocrine immune connection, which I think has been a hot topic this year. Um and so as that baby is born and we start looking at the umbilical cord blood, this is where a lot of this data is beginning to reveal alterations at the epigenome and the the genes that are actually at at danger. And one of the statistics that I thought was so interesting, and especially in our time and day where we understand BPA is bad and don't drink out of BPA and mommies be healthy. And I think there's a, a global awareness in young women who are achieving pregnancies, trying to be clean, trying to take the chemicals out. And yet the data said that nine out of 10 umbilical cord blood tests reveal astronomically elevated BPA, just that one chemical. Is so potent. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Then we have the birth of the baby, right? So we have the potential insults that happen at the birth of the baby. And this is where, you know, Dr. Randy Dirtle showed: hey, when the pregnant mouse model was fed methylfolate, you know, we see a better epigenome exposure. If the mouse mom is fed BPA and methylfolate, they still express a better genome. So The purpose of analyzing this is to say, well, there are things that we want to warn our mommies during pregnancy to avoid BPA, obviously, but you and I are not going to take BPA out of all environmental exposure. I mean, even in mommies practicing their best lifestyle, there are going to be insults that are there. So how can we help our moms express the baby's best epigenome, right? And their best Epigenome. And some of that is methylation support, and not just methylation through just methylfolate, but choline, diet, dietary um, methyl donors, glycine is a methyl donor. So, nutritionally, we're trying to model prior to pregnancy, let's get ready for pregnancy. Two, during pregnancy, let's be very careful about vaccines. I mean, how many pregnant women are told, go get the flu shot? I'm on absolutely no vaccines during pregnancy. If you are high risk and you get the flu, I'm going to give you Tamiflu. Like We have a measure to treat a mom within the first 48 hours. So it's a lot of education, Chris. And I think parents are asking right? They're literally preparing for pregnancy. I had a mom that was a hundred pounds overweight and said, no, Dr. Brace, can you help me get pregnant? I said, absolutely. I will not help you get pregnant. I will help you lose 100 pounds because obesity is a known factor of affecting that baby's epigenome and leading to future obesity later on in life. Like it's really hard for people to embrace like how powerful something like obesity can have in affecting the health of your baby. Um, I have an MA, she's a type one diabetic. The perinatologist will not let her get pregnant unless her A1C is below 6.5. That is hard for a type one diabetic. It requires a highly motivated mom and a husband who's greatly invested in supporting that pregnant mom or the couple that wants to be pregnant, because there's a lot of factors that put our children, our future generation at risk. And so it's like strategy. We have to strategize these prepar- preparational periods. And once that baby's born, like they want to give you that baby, a hep C shot at birth. I'm like, that is forbidden. And all of my babies do not, the you knows, do not dare put a, a vaccine in any of my babies. And our reputations as doctors is making that known to the hospital because these mommies, they're being bullied. Kaiser will bully these parents and make them feel if you're not giving that baby a vaccine at two months, four months, six months, you're a bad parent. State of California tells those parents you cannot put your kids in school if your kids are not fully vaccinated by four that's transitional kindergarten. So it takes a lot of education. Chris, I'm not anti-vaccines entirely. What I am is I am anti-vax, 29 vaccines in the first year of life. I do not believe you should be vaccinating pregnant mommies unless they're super high risk, immunocompromised. Do you see what I'm saying? But the the postpartum period, I think is an area that does not get enough attention. We talked a lot about breastfeeding and Such fascinating research looking at the difference between a breastfed baby and their immune system and a non-breastfed baby and their immune system. And Chris, granted, I know that there are mommies that try to breastfeed and they're not successful. And this is not about shaming moms. Um, In my residency, when we had moms that were adopting babies or couldn't breastfeed, we donated our breast milk. I mean, the whole residency, I was an OB resident. We were all pro breastfeeding. We were donating our breast milk and having babies at the same time. But, you know, there is um, entities that will help women obtain breast milk if they have to do some formula milk, but can still obtain some breast milk. That's very powerful. You know, in our PowerPoint, we talked about breast milk from a cow is actually very similar to human milk, but we destroy it when we pasteurize it. You know, So if you and I were growing up on a farm and we went and we milked our cow and we gave that milk to the baby, it's not as harmful, but it's All the processing and treatment of the milk that destroys a lot of the immunological protection that's actually even in cow's milk. But that's just not our standard in society. You know, we're not allowed to give our babies raw milk. Right. And we're not allowed to promote that. So, you know, to the best of our ability, we want to do as many healthy interventions for these moms when they're preparing for birth warning them. We get them with the lactation specialist. I mean, we teach them about fenugreek and ways to you know, improve their breast milk. I'm um, having a pump. If they're going back to work, making sure they know their rights, that they have the, the right to take time to pump. But the gold, I mean, the American Academy of Pediatrics, we're really realizing two years of breastfeeding is probably the best standard because remember, we talked about the microbiome, Chris, that baby has three years. We have three years to develop the most sophisticated microbiome, which is basically the heart of the immune system of that child. That's that child's ability to play in the dirt, let the dog lick their face, let the chicken, you know, pick it up and get all this, you know, exposome that creates this fantastic microbiome that gives us this beautiful generation of entering into this world, which is very toxic, but having an immune system that can maybe tolerate the exposures that we're ultimately exposed to on a daily basis.
0: Right. Let's pull on a couple of those those strings. (laughs) Some of the stuff you're saying, of course, is going to ruffle some feathers, right? And that's okay, because this is an open conversation, I think, that needs to be had in society. The fact that we are suppressing information that the COVID era did really shows the uh, just the the lack of composure of the medical society to actually have open dialogue about things that could potentially cause a problem. So let's pull on a couple of those. So first thing, hepatitis B vaccine. I interviewed Marcel Nold from, uh, the, from Australia. He was a neonatologist and immunologist, and he has some data, preliminary, needs to be re- reproduced, but that they're showing that the hepatitis B vaccine in premature babies is increased risk significantly of pulmonary hypertension so the question that has to be asked now and we know vaccines cause side effects so that 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 is a that is not a an open discussion anymore that is a known fact so we just need to have that one out on the table as sort of like e equals mc squared these are not up for debate anymore vaccines cause side effects now Question I have and has not been answered, does hepatitis B at birth increase any changes in methylation, any changes in risk of the immune system that there would portend in term babies to be a problem because they're giving this to term babies? To your point, why are we doing hep B at birth? Well, that's an archaic old school need based on the unknown reality of a mother's hepatitis B status, but not now. 2023, we know the status of every mother when they come in. So we know if the child has risk for hepatitis B exposure. So to your point, why are we still giving a vaccine at birth that doesn't need to be given at birth? And there's no logical answer other than that's what the government has decided to do and the medical societies have decided to do. I, like you, don't see any logic behind it. And frankly, especially in those folks that are not motivated to vaccinate, I am 100% in favor of pushing that off. Now, where I sort of diverge from others, and this is again why I'd like to see more data, is pneumococcus at two months. That vaccine has unbelievable benefits. And I've witnessed them live because I lived through the 1999 to 1996 era of pneumococcus vaccine did not exist. And I saw a lot of kids get sick, some die, tragic. Vaccine comes out, that disease is pretty much put to bed. So we all also know the reality of vaccines do have incredible benefit. To your point, I think we need to be very forward thinking now that we have a tool- called epigenetics, and soon-to-be imprintome, to now start to study, are there subpopulations that are at risk, like the preterm babies and hep B? And this is science, right? To blanket statements say everybody should be vaccinated based on the past is to be stuck in the past, and medicine has taught us anything. The past is constantly changing, right? When I was in medical school like you, introns were considered junk DNA, now we know that is the entire coding region for everything you and I are speaking to today. So I think this is a critical piece of the discussion that I am full in effect in favor of having the conversation around constantly, what are the groups that should be vaccinated versus what are the groups that could potentially not be vaccinated. And I really want to see studies like you're stating in pregnant mothers. Now the flip side of that argument, I'm curious to see your 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 stance on when I did a lecture in in um, June on the neurological issues related to children being born, there is a subset of the population that when they're pregnant gets inflammatory disease from an infection and COVID did this and so did flu. Mm -hmm. So that is a direct link to autism spectrum disorder. So would you, and again, I I know your point and I think it needs to be studied a little more clearly. What What is the statement around that reality that we know that the virus will cause autism in a subset. Do we know the vaccine has any risk there? Cause I don't, and that's sort of my curiosity. And again, I am not an OB and I'm gonna say that out front, I don't study this as much. I'm curious to see your state on that um, because I think that's a, that's a big question to ask around vaccinating for flu. Now COVID, I have a lot of other questions about, but the flu, I'm sort of curious about that one.
1: So my concern, Chris, is if we know that an inflammatory hit has the ability especially at different windows of pregnancy to affect the baby's epigenome why doesn't everybody think that a vaccine is an inflammatory hit you're triggering an immune i'm pissed off i'm going to go into a cytokine flare i'm going to get an antigen in my body and my body's going to either get mildly irritated or I'm going to get really irritated. But we don't know that, right? It's like, why does one person eat a peanut and not have an allergic reaction? And the next person eats a peanut and has a horrific reaction. So why would you want to take the chance of putting a flu shot in a pregnant woman when you don't know where her immune system is going to go? I'll tell you this much, Chris, practicing this much genetic medicine, I can almost predict who's going to have a bigger, more inflammatory reaction. For example, the genotype COMT. If you look at the number of parents who have spectrum children and look at the number of those parents that carry the COMT genetic mutation, it is super high. Now I'm not Doing the research, and I'd love somebody to do that type of research. But there are genetically at risk individuals who don't break down dopamine and adrenaline as quickly as everyone else. So if right. you give that person either a histaminergic hit or a dopaminergic noradrenaline hit, That has a tendency to be a bigger fire, an inflammatory trigger, like a nuclear bomb of inflammation in their body. Now, it is true if you're eating well and you're able to curb oxidants better and you have a higher glutathione level, maybe that hit isn't as inflammatory for you. So again, I ask, if I have the ability to give somebody Tamiflu and to support them with modern day medicine that has the ability to inhibit their replication of the virus why would I give them the flu shot and without any knowledge of their tendencies I I just I don't feel comfortable doing that immunologically at risk individuals different because Chris they're not having a big reaction They're that's the exact opposite problem they're failing to, to have a sophisticated reaction so this is what happened in my son two months no problem four months vaccine, no problem. But something was at that six month vaccine. We had a horrific reaction to the six month vaccine. His anterior fontanelle was literally swollen like a bump, like a cartoon. That is not something I traditionally saw in most pediatric vaccines. And again, I've never been anti-vaccines. I think that 29 in the first year of life in windows of vulnerability, two months, four months, six months, back-to-back vaccinations triggering the immune system that many times is asking for a potential child reaction that was already at risk. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And you and I are not that sophisticated to check every newborn baby's genetics and to see who's at risk and who isn't. I think science will get there, but until we're there, we talked about this at the conference. If you look at the pediatric immunology data on on when can a baby make a memory cell, when can a baby make a sophisticated IgM conversion to an IgG reaction, it's somewhere between six and nine months. Then why are we giving a vaccine birth, two months, four months, six months? If a mother is breastfeeding, we know that her antibodies have the ability to deactivate the vaccine. That's already published in the data. So, breastfeeding women, especially. If you're using full-time breastfeeding and you feel confident that your child is a healthy child, I'm not pro-vaccination in the first six months of life. To me, that is a window of be careful. Once they can create a sophisticated reaction, I'm more like do one vaccine at a time to make sure that if one of these vaccines is a problem, trivalent make it very confusing. And why am I still vaccinating a baby of Hep B? at the two-month mark and at the four-month mark. Why? It doesn't make sense. They're not having sex. They're not doing IV drugs. If we're doing live attenuated vaccines at 12 months, we postpone that for a reason. Why are we giving a hep C, which has absolutely nothing to do with the newborn? It's just, if the the American Academy of Pediatrics and the government would say, we're pro-vaccines, but we're going to take it out of these windows of vulnerability. And Chris, If if you're like pneumococcal vaccine, I've experienced this as a life-saving, I'm open, but I'm not open to 29 in the first year of life. I feel like one of these days, you know, Dr. Jertle and Dr. Sinclair, they're going to come out and they're going to give us this data like we see with BPA. 2010. We finally won the battle with BPA, but there was years of battling the EPA about known data on how how toxic BPA was, but we're now just getting the data. If they looked at it at the cellular level and the receptor binding, we were told that BPA does not bind the estrogen receptor. It is not an estrogen. What we now know is the metabolites of BPA, once it goes to the liver and it makes a metabolite, is a very potent estrogen. This is largely related (laughs) to the vast array of young women today that have polycystic ovarian syndrome. As a family medicine doctor, I started this job 23 years ago. I saw PCOS once in a blue moon. It is almost 50% of every young woman that I see today, 50%. If you run their LHFSH and their androgens, they meet the criteria for polycystic ovarian syndrome. Is it because they drink too much plastic today or is this... Genetic ex- changes, epigenetic changes from their pregnancy when their mother had them in the womb and they were being more exposed to BPA. We don't know. We just don't know. So I'm a conservative. I'm a conservative in terms of the first year of life. I feel like this is the year to really, really take the step back, do less, watch these babies. I counsel my moms, watch their fine motor development, watch their gross motor development. Watch their speech development. When you feel like you have good signs of healthy neurological development and paying attention to their immune system and you want to bring in vaccines, we don't have a choice for us. California, you will do vaccines if you want your children to go to school. So I feel like we've had a very successful model in the clinic. My, a lot of my parents are anti-vaccines. They just won't do it. I'm trying to find the balance. Do you know what I mean? Like, Yeah. It's probably not the absolute worst thing for everybody, but we probably need to be a little bit more conservative in our approach, in the yeah. time of approach.
0: And I'll tell you again, I I uh, I love the dialogue. I love the ability to have the openness of the conversation, as Liz Mumper and I have talked, and many other folks have talked. I'm not sure I'm 100 on the same page, and that's totally okay. I have a very large clinic. We have. Uh, 16 providers, see tons of patients, primarily vaccinated. I'll just be you know honest about that. What I've seen more interestingly enough, and again, I'm falling into the camp, I think primarily most of the neurodiversity is starting pre-birth. I think most of it's happening in utero. And I have examples of patients who uh first two babies were born fully vaccinated. One turned out to have an autoimmune disease. They stopped vaccinating after that period of time. And then over six babies, the last two were fully autistic, hand flapping, uh the worst of them all, and they never were vaccinated. And the interesting piece of that pie, what changed dramatically during that time was mom's stress level, mom's weight, and mom's metabolic function got dramatically worse. And so I fall into a little bit different. Now, again, I'm not disagreeing with you so much as I'm saying, I would love to see the studies to finally answer this 100% based on the genetics. And that's where I think we 100% agree. Yeah. And and then then we can all sit down and go, okay, here's the science. Because right now, again, I think to some extent, we're living in this epidemiologic world that COVID opened up, right? So you look at this reality that the COVID vaccine goes out there and everyone's saying, oh, it's safe, it's safe, it's safe. Oh, no, no, no. There were so many people getting vaccinated. The signal became very clear. Young men, myocarditis, not a small thing, right? There were signals that popped up that you couldn't hide from because the volume of people getting sick. So again, leading back to your point, I think we need to study this more closely. I think we definitely need to look at it from a from a DNA perspective so we get hard data, not this you know willy-nilly reality. And I think the fact that the, the medical societies have slammed the door on this to study further, I think says a lot about fear, not about science. And hep B, I think is a big one, should really be pulled out of the birth cycle. It doesn't make any sense anymore. And then a lot of the other ones we can certainly talk about. My fear in moving globally, again, not just your population, because you have a selected population of people who are more likely to take care of their bodies. In my clinic, I have a lot of poverty. And so okay. the ability of my folks to really take care of themselves puts them at much higher risk for an immunologic outcome that's negative when it comes to a bacteria. So if I held off on pneumococcus and hemophilus and potentially even pertussis until a year... I think we'd go back to my 1996, 99, 99 years at UVA, where I saw a lot of disease and death. And I would have a really hard time with that. Again, I love the conversation. I don't disagree with you. I'd love to see more science to give us a better answer. And frankly, at that point, I think we need to target sort of like Marcel Nold says, you know, we don't give hep B to babies that are premature because that signal is high. And then we start getting it again, targeted science, like you're talking about COMT, MTHFR, you know, MTRR, what other genetic single nucleotide polymorphisms could potentially be driving this outcome specifically in a subpopulation? Then we're getting into... Twenty Twenty Three medicine instead of nineteen ninety two, and I, and I totally, totally, totally agree that that's the way we should be heading in 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 the world of directional analysis of disease and and health and health. And then the conversation we have is all science based. Go ahead, you are going to say.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, the one thing that I thought was very interesting during COVID is you know everyone got that COVID vaccine. I mean, the, the patients just they went to the pharmacy, they got it the mass, mass amount of patients, Chris, that I saw walk into our clinic after that vaccine and get the worst case of shingles I've ever seen. That directly tells you what happens to the epigenome when you take a vaccine. So that isn't a sophisticated adult. Do you see what I'm saying? Some of them immunologically at risk, but I saw 32 year olds have shingles around their anus. I mean, we're talking everywhere. That was not immunologically at risk individual. Did so, you
0: notice that in the after the second dose or the first? Because I think this is something that's sort of critical. They pushed the vaccine too close together. And it was very clear that if you waited till eight weeks, like in Canada or in, in Europe or 12 weeks even, that immune signal was much lower. Did you notice that difference or was it first dose?
1: That's such a fantastic um, subject. And I'm going to look into that now, but I, I think my point was vaccines for pediatrics, two months, four months, six months, they're too close. They don't give them sophisticated time to like settle down the fire of the immune system before we add another. It's the schedule that I'm concerned about and COVID validated that. You see what I'm saying? So whether it's the first or the second, you have people that are on four. And when you looked at the data after the fourth shot, The immune system was far, far more at risk, right? So they're not changing the schedule. Every patient's walking to the pharmacy. They're not consulting with the doctor and they're getting their shingles vaccine and their COVID vaccine and their flu vaccine. Boom, boom, boom. And don't forget the new RSV vaccine they're getting. Like, (laughs) We don't truly understand the epigenetic ramifications of a vaccine. So (laughs) I'm not anti-vaccines, but we have to reanalyze the way that we're doing this and who's at risk and look at the timing of it. And I know in pediatrics, that's really tough in your patient population. And I have a very educated patient population. They're very invested. They walk in with their genetics. Here's my 23 and me. And so I think we, we have to embrace that we all come from different environments and I'm able to cater to a very sophisticated population, which makes research fun because they're willing to run a methylation panel and take a peek and say, yeah, I don't want to do it yet. Do you know what I mean? So I get a little fun on my side of town because they entertain my, you know, my curious genetic brain to kind of see where we're all a little bit different.
0: So again, I love that. And what I'd love to see is the day when we could democratize medicine to the point that what you're doing for your patient population becomes universal for those that have less means. And I cannot wait for that day. Leslie Stone, I know you know her and her work with Grow Baby. That has to be the national national study, right? So can we do what Leslie's doing on a national level? We're trying to bring it to North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And then if that becomes the case, I would love to see two cohorts, right? I would love to see the Grow Baby Project working with all moms and then have two groups, traditional vaccine and the, the parents that refuse to vaccinate and then track them. And it's just Mm -hmm. like this: the the folks that are not going to vaccinate aren't going to vaccinate anyway. And we have the group that will. And then we just watch it. There's no, I have no dog in the fight Mm -hmm. other than science. And then I can say, okay, here we go, folks. What does the data show? And and the problem I worry, again, there's powers that be that don't want this studied because it goes against what their modus operandi is, right? And that's the problem. And so to your point, I 100% agree. I can't wait to see it. All right. Let's segue. So as you stated earlier, obesity and metabolic syndrome in mom is an is a epigenetic phenomenon. We know from an epidemiologic perspective that if you are obese and diabetic as a mother, your child has a 4X, not 4%, not 40%, a 4X risk of having autism spectrum disorder, right? So we now know that epidemiologically. And you know, again, looking at it from what your research has done, that this is actually an epigenetic phenomenon. Sort of give us a primer as to what you think. Again, I know it's not concrete yet, but what you truly think is happening.
1: So one is we know that obesity is an inflammatory disease. So it goes right back to the conversation we were talking about. If the mom has an inflammatory trigger, whether it's an infection, whether it's an an immune stress, because remember the neuroendocrine immune connection means even if I'm stressed out, like you talked about the mom that ended up having two highly autistic children at the end, and the only thing that changed was stress, stress is inflammation right? Diabetes just happens to be one of the most inflammatory syndromes out there. And it's inflammatory at the insulin level, right? Because insulin is so pro-inflammatory. And remember, insulin is a growth factor, right? So what are you doing? You're talking about growing a baby with an excessive amount of growth hormones like insulin level. This is looking for a neurobehavioral problem. And I want to go back to what we said with when these babies are born, Chris, because they've come out of this like inflammatory bath, right? They're in a placenta and a, a a belly full of just straight inflammatory blood going to them and they're born. And we already know they're at risk. That baby is even higher at risk. When you start vaccinating, you see what I'm saying? So like, you really have a double hit here. You have babies that are in an environment being raised that are going to be born and they're already kind of this at risk because maybe mom is already not feeling fantastic. So you're right. We're going to give them a two month, a four month, a six month vaccine. And those children are going to be part of this. If it's not an autistic spectrum, Chris, these children are not neurobehaviorally normal. We see these kids are, if you ask 10 children, are you anxious? A majority of them know that word and understand anxiety. And then we there and we put tablets in their face, which are like just overactivating so many dopamine circuits. Okay. So it's just like the cascade just goes on. It's the tragedy of not counseling women before they're pregnant, saying, like I said to that last lady, by the way, that woman had a beautiful newborn baby. She dropped 100 pounds without any drugs other than my favorite, which is metformin. And I just want to throw this out here metformin is now known not only to be an anti-aging gene, right? So when you look at the epigenetic clocks and the uh, DNA clocks that they're looking at, studying the methylation, they actually show that metformin use lowers the cellular age, lower than the biological age. Well, the data showed, which is just fantastic, that when you use metformin, it actually grows mucus and mucus producing bacteria like acromantia, which is such a hot topic right now in terms of neuroprotection, it goes right back to the microbiome and the window of inflammation is really the gut, right? So even in mm-hmm. pregnancy, I mean, food is such a hot element. I crave this, I crave that, like. How is that food changing their microbiome? And that baby is inheriting the mother's microbiome. So yes, her inflammation in her body, but think about her microbiome and how it changes because of hormones. So one of the talks that I did with Dr. Bland at PLMI was the connection between the microbiome, estrogen called the estravolone and obesity. And one of the things that we've studied is at menopause, Within four weeks of a woman losing her period, the microbiome changes and it loses its diversity. And it has a minimal diversity bacteria that now favors obesity. Literally the bacteria becomes obesogenic bacteria. What I'd like to see is that data in pregnancy. You see what I'm saying? Totally. Women who are eating clean at that 28 week where you do the two hour GTT and you drink it, these women that are clean and living healthy lives have diabetes like that. So that's an estrogen phenomenon. If you look at women in menopause, 69% of women who are not treated with bioidentical hormones at the time of menopause develop cardiometabolic disease, obesity, prediabetes, heart disease, and obesity, 69% of women. So some of this is, my in my concern, menopause is natural, but look at the environmental estrogens. Yep. Like they
0: have potency. Yeah, to your point earlier, right? So, plastics, BPA is no longer in baby bottles, no longer. But oh, by the way, if you talk to Ken Cook at EWG, BPB and BPC and BPP are still. So, we traded one nightmare for another, and we have not, it has not left the system. And so then we get into the next piece of the pie you're pulling on, right? Which is the toxic effects of plastics and obesity. They're obesogens. These estrogen uh, estrogen analogs or endocrine disruptors are epigenetically driving dysfunction. And oh, by the way, if you've been doing this for a while pre-pregnancy, how is that affecting the epigenome of the child? And I know, again, to your point, most of the data is showing that those things that were natural, breastfeeding quality diets you know a, a exposure to clean air clean water and clean food in theory is setting the immune system up epigenetically again clearly epigenetically to be tolerant solvent mm-hmm. and functional right and then i want to pull on one more lever that you just said right so we know that folks who are obese have dysfunctional microbiome something called dysbiosis oh by the way that dysbiosis is directly tied to poor vaccine response Mm. right? We know that. And now epigenetically, that's a piece of it. So is it such that we could then go and say, okay, the vaccine in and of itself may inherently not be the biggest problem. It may be the milieu of the immune system's reality at the time the introduction of said vaccine. And more stuff I would love to study here. Again, to your point, I think the biggest issue is how do we stop disease now? And that is- what you're gonna get into in about two seconds, the primer for what that looks like from the eyes of Bridget Briggs. But frankly, I think the only way we're ever gonna stop this problem is to study it and keep studying it until we can come up with a consensus answer as to what is the truth. Because right now we have bench research that's excellent, but we have all this ideological stuff that is suppressing anybody's ability to question. And and COVID again, just shine the brightest spotlight on the suppression of knowledge. Now it's coming out. Now you see every comedian on the planet talking about the lab leak theory. Now you see every comedian on the planet talking about horse ivermectin. Again, it didn't matter if ivermectin ever worked. It mattered that they called it a horse medicine when we've been using it in children for 50 years to suppress Uh the ability of it to be a (laughs) functional therapy. If it turned out not to work, amen, so we don't use it. But why not study it? Right. This is the problem I think that you and I are touching on right now, coming from different angles, but coming with the same belief in the human outcome and health and the love of the human to be the best version of ourselves, given our epigenetic makeup. So I I love what you're saying. Again, whether or not we agree 100 percent doesn't matter, because in the end, the science is going to prove Somewhere in the middle, likely what I, that looks like, I, and I, and I think it's going to be somewhere in the middle. I think vaccines are not going to be the main issue, but maybe it is the volume. Maybe it is the volume coupled to the to, to the way the body is sitting right now from an immune solvency perspective, and especially during pregnancy. And I, Bridget, I I I think you're on to something. What that is, I don't know, and I really want to see more data. But I would love to see Grow Baby do mm-hmm. a study of vaccinated and non-vaccinated in their population, because I think their original data looks like they're stopping autism, pretty much dead in its tracks. Wow. So I, I'd really love to see how that that plays out then when when that group is then, because uh, you, you can't randomize, but you can certainly track in an observational pattern what, what comes afterwards. So again, time to be seen um, what they come up with in data. And then you and I can have more conversations about what we think the epigenetics of this reality is, as that study plays out. Okay.
1: Chris, I want to make Mm -hmm. a comment. Um, the one thing that I think we can definitely agree upon is if you feel like you have an, an at-risk child, you can introduce Sammy. So Zymogen has a very powerful, you know, powdered Sammy trimethylglycine. So I give this to our children if I'm going to vaccinate them and we do, and we carry the little powdered trimethylglycine Sammy. Um, we'll do this before they go to the dentist and have like nitric oxide. So you'll have these kids that have the CMT kids. They have nitric oxide They get a horrific reaction, screaming, yelling, neuro excitability. You do the same thing. You give them the packet of methyl groups before they have their procedure. They wake up happy, go lucky, no problem. I did this to my daughter. She's a COMT before an eye surgery. The anesthesiologist canceled the surgery and said, how dare you give somebody something before surgery that goes down their mouth? And I explained, she's a COMT. She does not metabolize some of the anesthetics. He's like, well, for you, I did my PhD in pharmacogenetics. He let me give it to her. She woke up from the surgery, absolutely giggly and fun, not the toxic exposure or reaction she had before. Right. So right. if we're in a position That we want to protect this at-risk child, just like Dr. Randy Jurdle did. He said, okay, we're going to give an exposure like BPA, but why don't we support methylation if we're going to do the vaccine? So we express a better genome outcome.
0: Yep. And escidendal methionine is what you're talking about, Sammy. It's a massive methyl donor and super interesting. And you know, another big methyl donor is creatine and creatine monohydrate. So Um, There are supplements out there in my world. What I try and do with folks, again, is is, uh, with the large poverty, 70% of my patients, methyl donors from Randy Jurdle's work, as we well know, and now you know, and then Kara Fitzgerald's excellent work with Younger You, is it's food, right? So making sure they're eating lots and lots of methyl donor foods, so beets, spinach, you know, all, all these wonderful foods, meat has B12 in it. These are all methyl donors in their natural form and can help override the single nucleotide polymorphisms of COMT and MTHFR, MTR, or whatever they are, right? So to your point, in a a situation where you're going to go for surgery, really good idea to flood the system with stuff, right? And I totally agree. And I use a lot of uh, methylated B vitamins and complexes like Designs for Health, B Supreme. So totally get it. Totally agree. We are 100% on the same page there. You're lucky. Your patients know their genomics. Mine don't, but we can still play the game the only thing I've ever seen with giving somebody methyl donors that's too irritating is they can be hypermethylated, which makes them a little overactivated or anxious, and that means they probably didn't need it. Um, Long term, I wonder what supplemental would do, but in your case, you're talking about not not using it long-term in the short-term piece, but also you also know which folks probably need it long-term because they have the genomic mutations. I, I care if it's shown in a long talk about this. And I think for me, food first is always going to be my mentality. I know you agree with that. And I think that's, to me, that's the future of medicine is trying to get it such that food changes the outcome in kids by leveling the playing field, democratizing the risk by giving them all these methyl donors through food. So I, I 100% agree with you. All right. Unless you have another question, let's shift gears to the final piece. So you've been doing this for a while. You're one of the experts in the space of understanding from the MD perspective, what epigenetics is, not the bench. What is your current recipe for the closest it can be to natural perfect pregnancy? Or or let me go back actually even further. If you have a mother who says, I want to be pregnant or a woman who wants to be pregnant, what are you going to tell her in whatever random order you wish in order for her to have the best way to conceive number 1 how to carry that child to term and and I'm using this loosely as the epigenetic perspective now that doesn't have to be at the epigenetic level but what are you going to say that says this is what I think is going to give your epigenome the best chance of reading the DNA to make the best proteins to be the best version of yourself god willing
1: mm-hmm. So I love couples to come in and, and plan it together I like to spend three months before they actually attempt to get pregnant to do detoxification. So, food can be a great detox. It doesn't need to be, need to be some fancy detox shake that people do, or it could be exercise, it could be infrared, but I want to get the fat cells clean, right? Because our fat cells are big um, reservoir of a lot of environmental toxins. So I love metagenics, 28 day detox. If they want something that's a little bit more food based with some like milk thistle and things like that. But I like to do both mom and dad, let's do 30 days of a nice, healthy detox and then healthy food. So of course, men, their sperm is replicated about every 120 days. So that gives me at least dad's got good sperm, right? I mean, you guys are the easiest because, you can make a mistake and then 3 months later we erase the slate and we start over. So yep. I like to make sure dad this is all I need from you. Give me 3 months get super healthy. Don't sit on a bike, don't cook your testes in a sauna. They they will usually obey for about 3 months, you know. Yeah. And then from <laughs> point on, you know, I I'm all about, you know, tr- once we get pregnant, um I tell mom, first of all guys, remember this much. Prenatal vitamins are very deficient. Look at them. They're not the end-all be-all. People think, oh, I should take a prenatal for the rest of my life. They're highly deficient. So I like food-based uh, multivitamins. You know what I mean? So your basics, but choline is such a powerful ingredient for fetal development. So, yep. you know, I try to give them a list of high choline-enriched foods because we're growing a brain before we even know we're pregnant, right? That neurodevelopment is in, by the time you're two weeks into your pregnancy, this brain is already off on a, on a running start. List um,
0: some so,
1: of those. Hmm? Oh, like eggs Eggs is a a high choline. Fish is a high choline. I mean, we've got to be careful about mercury and things like that. Um,
0: uh,
1: Soy is a high, soy lecithin and things like that is a high phospholipid ingredient food. So I try to use a list of high choline foods. As well as a really top quality prenatal vitamin. I love metagenics because they have a food-based prenatal with DHA enriched. Most of the prenatals are all enriched with that, but I love to add extra DHA. So at least 800 milligrams of DHA because it's so important in fetal development, neurological development. Next is we try to make sure that there is some type of a methyl donor in their prenatal. So again, not high dose because we do have methyl sensitive individuals, correct? But if you keep your methyl folate around four hundred, it's so gentle; it never over methylates anybody. In in medicine, I've learned to keep the B twelve dominant. So B twelve should always be about twice the the amount of folate, and that's because of the the stop gap that can happen with methylation. So B twelve is critical. Your B twelve always must be dominant without creating some of the folic acid stopgate side effects that you'll see people get. Um, Next is I like people to wear their Apple watches or their aura rings. And I like to assess mom's heart rate variability. Do you ever do that, Chris? Mm -hmm. I think how do mommies know when they're adapting to stress? Well, how do they know if they're eating right according to their blood type, according to their, um, you know, do I intermittent fast? Do I eat every three hours? Like, how do you know? Like there's a million formulas for being healthy. Well, to me, you look at your heart rate variability. And if uh, my daughter is pregnant, actually, Chris, it's so interesting because she's a big athlete. Yeah. I'm super excited. I'm going to be a grandma. That's a little weird, but whatever. Um, yeah. And one of the most interesting things she said to me is she has this, totally athletic, amazing heart rate variability. The day she got pregnant, her heart rate variability dropped. And she was concerned, like, mom, what's going on? I'm like, look, discover it, like n- make an introduction, maybe do a little meditation, maybe do a little yoga. Does it improve? Like play with your heart rate variability? Cause it's deeply embedded into what's going on with your immunity. Right. And we talked about, we want that immune system to be healthy. I, I love mushrooms in pregnancy. So if I can get my mommies to eat mushrooms every day, if they're not sensitive, because it's such a natural in booster of the natural killer cells, because mm-hmm. I don't want them to get sick, right? I want to give them this extra immune boost that I don't have to worry about an inflammatory hit going on. I love- And
0: for the them. guests, the mushrooms you're choosing are usually Japanese style, an shiitake, maitake- tiger
1: yes. reishi, uh, was it
0: lion's yes. mane, reishi, right. Not, yes. not champignon.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. No, no. Sorry about that. Thanks, Chris. Um, no definitely. Um, I love SPMs. I don't know if you use SPMs, but in yep. any of my moms that walk into pregnancy and they're inflamed, I'm really highly cautious with these moms that they're using herbs like turmeric that's anti-inflammatory SPMs that are anti-inflammatory to quell the inflammation. And the other thing is maximizing thyroid. I think it's easily missed in pregnancy. Lots of women have, you know, thyroid disease going into pregnancy and we see primary care doctors and OBs miss that. And that's a big connection to healthy baby, right? So looking at, um, Every trimester, their thyroid function to make sure if you need to up that. So, food is medicine, water, sleep, heart rate variability, methylation support, omega 3 support, and a good quality multivitamin that's plant based. That's my usual let's get pregnant. I talked to you about I don't counsel anyone to get pregnant unless they get down to their ideal body weight. And that's hard. And Chris, I love metformin to help them get down to that. And my formula for weight loss is metformin with B12 support, of course, and I have them do about 20 net carbs per meal. So no calorie counting or any of that, but we're really working on the insulin resistance and the inflammatory process that happens with insulin resistance. So plant-based, 20, 20 grams of carbs per meal and trying to get down to the ideal body weight so that we're not walking into pregnancy inflamed and risking the dramatic increase in autism.
0: Love it. So your primer is basically what functional medicine would call the anti-inflammatory pathway to healing. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, and there are a couple items I want to touch on SPM, special uh, pro-resolving lipid mediators, basically the derivatives of fish oil that are very, very good for human health because they are 100% an attack on inflammation. So SPMs love them. Um, And kids, as the age of one now, I'm having all children take fish oil um, regardless, just because of all risks that come from modernized diets. And so it's a big one, SPM specific. uh, But I go, I start mostly upstream at fish oil and then we go SPMs in specific cases if needed, like concussions and stuff like that. And then the other one I was thinking... metformin, right? So metformin has a lot of pleiotrophic effects. One of them, it definitely alters the microbiome. The other piece I loved about it is it's involved in mitochondrial uh, function and has an effect on the electron transport chain and slowing it down, governing it slight bit. But berberine is another player in this game that I, especially in kids, I use a, okay. lot, more ber, I use a lot more berberine um, mm-hmm. in children, especially if they have issues related to metabolic syndrome, to try and push the microbiome to be less anti them and more pro them, sort of get back to trying to be in the symbiotic land. Uh, I don't use as much metformin in the young kids, but as they get older, we definitely dive into metformin land. But berberine is something I found to be a very, very functional herb. And again, for all the guests listening, all the medicines we have are generally derived from plants. When some way shape or form we've just synthesized them and reduced them down to a chemical the system is very well set up to tolerate herbs and plants very well because the toxicity is much lower to the body while you're gently nudging systems towards solvency and so i agree with you 100 metformin is one of the ones that's been around forever what does it come from lavender if i remember correctly Mm -hmm. right so these are natural Ah. things and that and and i love it so Yes, Bridget, uh, super, 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 super awesome conversation. We touched on so many things and I'd love to do it again sometime, but this is going to sort of close out this current three-part series on epigenetics. You're the clinician side of the brilliance that was followed along the great work of Randy Jordan, Moshe Schiff, and many others that are really slugging down this pathway. One final question. So I ask this of every guest and you may or may not know this, but I'm going to say it anyway, the way it is, the government would give you a golden ticket. And you're in California, so if it was uh, California, you may be able to take this to Gavin. I forget, let's go federal. We want to go higher. You're going to give this ticket to either Congress, you're going to give it to the President of the United States, and you're going to have the ability to change one thing. In my world, I would change school food. I would absolutely 100% revolutionize all schools, give kitchens only whole foods. They couldn't eat junk. End of story. What would you pick?
1: I would ask the government to take plastic out of all food.
0: Amen. You know, it's sort of ironic that you say that, right? So glass comes from sand, superheated sand. When you put it back in the earth, other than the the dye that's in it for making it green or whatever, if it's colored, it's a very simple process that it really isn't going to be toxic to the environment. Plastic is coming from oil. It is 100% toxic in all levels, all shapes, all forms. It doesn't degrade well. When it does degrade, it leaches terribly. So yeah, I'm with you. You know, I man, I'd love to see tact plastic wiped out from the planet. I, I don't think it does anything good other than make our lives convenient, but boy, is it doing some really bad shit to us.
1: Legit. I, I got back from Taiwan with Eric, Dr. Lundquist, um, and I looked around and I thought it was so fantastic that no one in Taiwan is overweight. Very few, I should say. You know, They walk everywhere. They eat incessantly, but nothing that they eat comes in a package. They cook everything. They give you literally eight meals. You sit there, do they just keep feeding you? But nothing comes out of a package. They go home and they cook every day. They shop every day. They walk every day. Singapore is the sixth healthiest nation on the map. They walk everywhere. They cook everything. And they are financially responsible for their health care. They don't get it for free. Your health care comes out of your taxes. And that's your bank for health. If Americans didn't get health with an insurance company so cheaply, we wouldn't abuse our bodies the way we do. And we would have a bigger voice with the government in what is making us sick, but we're not going to change healthcare. I'm, I told you, Chris, I'm in a master's program at USC, executive masters of healthcare administration, because I want to make it up to Congress. I want a voice for functional medicine doctors. I want the government to hear why epigenetics means we are not all a cookie cutter and you can't all vaccinate us the same. You can't feed one person plastic and think we're all going to react the same way. We need to personalize medicine. And if we did, we would have a healthier nation in general. Not all countries have this incidence of autism. So what's the difference? Yep. There's no autoimmune diseases in other countries. What's the difference? If we don't ask these big questions to the government, the government's not going to ask us. They don't care.
0: I love it, and I agree with you. And i i i, I will hope you put on a big Teflon coat because you're going to immediately get a bullseye from big pharma and big ag. They're not going to like you because they are vet, they are invested in keeping us sick. I, I'm not a conspiracy guy, but when the farm bill. Spends all of its money subsidizing the foods that are killing us. And then we're spending all the money on the back end producing the drugs to try and stop the farm bill from doing what it is. And now we're talking about Ozempic and all these wet or Wilgovi or whatever these dang drugs are, these GOP1 agonists, to try and stop the problem that they're starting in the first place. Sort of completely dysfunctional. So if you run on a federal level ever. And I can vote for you. You got my vote. If you run at a state level, I can't help you, but I'll definitely be, uh, I'll definitely be promoting you through podcast or whatever, but uh, I'd love to see more physicians get involved in this world. I had dinner with Rob Lustig a couple of weeks ago at the conference and he is pushing super hard to change school food. And man, I, I am, I, love I pray, it. I pray for that man to pull something out of the hat and give that rabbit some love and and give us some real food. So I want to thank you. I, I absolutely enjoyed this conversation. I love your brain. I love how you think. I love how you just peel the onion and go for it. So I just want to t- tell you how much I appreciate you and your effort and your time and your life and giving it back this hour for the folks to listen to. And so I'm going to give you the last word. Thank you.
1: Thank you, my friend. You're fantastic. Thank you for all that you do to spread good functional medicine and, and open up conversations that are fun to talk about and, and find, you know, our own um, energies together where we like shape each other, like iron that shapes iron. I love great minds coming together and asking big questions. And I hope this makes big changes.
0: Amen. Appreciate you very much.
1: Thank you. Bye.
0: Bye. Well, there you have part three of three in the epigenetics series. Starting off with Dr. Randy Jurdle and his seminal moments of understanding how epigenetics actually exists as a field, number one, how it came to be through DNA methylation in the Goody Mouse model, and what that means moving forward with his new studies in the imprintome. And then we shifted over to Dr. Moshe Schiff and understanding that it's not just food, chemicals, and toxins that are involved in changing how the exposome or the outside world affects our DNA, but actually the behavior has a huge effect. Stress has a huge effect on our DNA. And then now we wrap it up with Dr. Briggs and a deep dive into the clinical understandings of how we apply this. And I will submit to you, I think we're in the infancy stage of understanding epigenetics in clinical applications. We are still crawling, maybe even not even crawling. We're so so far behind where we need to be, but that's going to change super fast. I mean, we only figured this theory out 20 something years ago. So there's going to be a lot of change happening in the next decade. And I think Dr. Briggs and many other leaders in the field of clinical medicine are going to start answering these questions. You know, Dr. Cara Fitzgerald, in her podcast, we discussed in The Younger You how they're using the epigenetic clock now to look back and see how, through dietary interventions and supplement interventions and exercise interventions, we could actually wind back someone's biological age. Can't change chronological age, but we can wind back their biology and make them younger biologically at the cellular level. And I think Dr. Briggs is looking at that same perspective. And I find her onion-peeling theory of thinking to be super fascinating and provocative, Clearly, some folks will be ruffled by the discussions around vaccination. I am not. I am absolutely open to all conversations. And as you heard in the topic, I think we should study this deeper. I am pro-vaccine. And I think in the long run, somewhere as discussed in the podcast, we're going to find out in the middle that there are subgroups that are susceptible to vaccination in a negative way. And we need to know who those groups are. And to exercise caution in the face of that is only smart, prudent medicine. That's Hippocratic Oath. I... Don't think in my own personal experience that going against the two, four, six month uh, dosing of pneumococcus and Hib would be prudent because I've seen the risk too high of death. That being said, I'd be really curious to see what subgroups would likely need to push these off. I think there's a lot to be looked at here. And Dr. Briggs and I agree implicitly that studying is the key to these answers. And how we get there, who knows? I think there's so much push back against even looking at these topics that it's going to be hard-pressed for us to get answers that we really need. In the short run, it is really important to have these conversations with very smart colleagues like Dr. Briggs who can give us other viewpoints that we may not be looking at. And I find her expression of her beliefs refreshing. And I find her thought process exceedingly well-calculated and thought through. She has a command of the knowledge of epigenetics and methylation and how that plays out. Her population is very unique in the fact that it is a sort of, put it, SDN-centric in the upper echelons of ability. So there's more opportunity for her patient population to do things that my patient population may or may not have the opportunity to do. So I think for me, this conversation is really about exploring possibility. And I highly encourage you, if you are somebody who is going to get pregnant, or if you are somebody who has family members who are going to get pregnant, to start thinking about these possibilities. Start thinking heavily about how you approach preparing for pregnancy, dietarily, through exercise thought processes, through sleep patterns, through anything that could be affecting the epigenome. I think it's critical that through Moshe shifts work, we are very clearly looking at how to stop stress that it affects the frame. And I think Dr. Briggs is spot on that we have to avoid chemicals in all their forms, especially plastics, endocrine-disrupting chemicals. I think she is dead on there. And I think we will have to continue to be precautionary in this state and really be thoughtful about what we can avoid without risk, right? Vaccines I'm not sure about, but I am darn sure that plastics have no value in our lives outside of convenience, and me, if you're pregnant, that's not enough. And whether or not you choose to go down the other roads is up to everybody's own calculus with their physician, their provider, their thought processes around how they want to approach all of these things. But certain things to me are baked in already. Healthy diet, baked in, right? No question that's beneficial. The, de- the data in epigenetically is very clear. Methyl donors through food are amazing. Secondarily, avoiding toxins. No issues there. It's obvious toxins are not good for us. Plastics are a toxin. You know, poor air pollution, toxin. Living in some place like Los Angeles or New York City or San Francisco, you're exposed to a lot of particulate matter. If there's fires outside from one of these forest fires that are occurring in the West Coast or in Canada, close your windows, run your AC if you're pregnant. There's a lot of things to think about, a lot of levers to pull on for protection. And then we need to see about some more information as time rolls out. But for me, I think Dr. Briggs brings a lot of question marks that I would love to see explored. I appreciate her time, and I truly appreciate all of your time for listening and being a part of the conversation of moving forward the healthcare spectrum of life, how we see things. It should not be protocol-driven, and it should not be closed-minded. That is how medicine stagnates. I don't want to see that. I want to see conversation, exploration, and growth. And for that, I appreciate everyone's time. I hope everyone has a great day. And let's uh, let's remember, every life is special. And stress is not good for us on a chronicity state. So let's work towards relieving stress wherever we find it. And always remember to hug those kids. Have a great day. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue and does not constitute the formation of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.